This week, we have a live panel discussion with Aaron Bobnick, Ian Norman, and Joshua Cripps. And you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I'm just getting back from the Out of Moab conference, which was down just outside of Canyonlands and Arches National Park. It was a really fun, really great conference with a whole bunch of really amazing instructors. And three of those instructors was Joshua Cripps, Aaron Bobnick, and Ian Norman from Lonely Spec. We've had Erin on the show a couple times. She's best known for her work in the Death Valley region as well as the Dolomites in Italy. She's an amazing workshop instructor, one of my favorite photographers. We've also had Josh Cripps on the show who is best known for his YouTube channel, Professional Photography Tips, and he is just one of my favorite personalities in landscape photography. He's not only a funny guy, but he's a really intelligent, really smart guy with a really good perspective on a whole lot of things. But Ian Norman is someone that I've never actually had the opportunity to talk with before or have on the show before. He runs LonelySpec.com. And if you're an astrophotographer or a night photographer, I'm guessing that you have heard of that because LonelySpec.com is probably the largest or the most popular astrophotography website slash blog on the internet. We started off with a general conversation about you know, things that came up while leading our excursions in Moab. And we also touched on conservation and things that we can do to kind of take a more active role in conservation as, as photographers. And then we started taking questions that came in from the audience and that's kind of what this panel was. It's a pretty long episode and I think that's a good thing because this panel had a lot of great stuff to say. So. I'm going to shut up now. Let's jump into the conversation that we had. Aaron Bobnick, Ian Norman, and Josh Cripps at the live Q&A episode recorded live in front of a studio audience in Moab, Utah. All right, so I'm sitting down with Aaron Bobnick. Ian Norman and Josh Cripps and we've been photographing the beautiful Moab area for the past what four days we've been all leading excursions with these fabulous people that we have in front of us and anytime that you're teaching multiple groups of people a lot of times the same questions and the same recommendations kind of come up over and over again I know that I've been talking a lot about trying not to set up your camera too early and try to be creative early and stuff uh, but Josh why don't we start with you you've been leading some excursions and stuff when you're leading different groups of people what are the common questions or the common recommendations that come up often what are what are those looking like um, most people want to know why sunrise is so early. That's, <laughs> that's the most common question I get. Do we really have to be out here right now? Why is it so cold? Why does my camera not do what I want it to? Probably the most common question that I get, I get two, two types of questions. Super practical technical questions like how do I use a 10-stop filter to make long exposures? And then uh, the big can of worms, composition. Everybody always just says, how do I make better compositions? Mm. Rob's talking about this in his presentation earlier in the week. I think that starts for me with uh, figuring out before you even get the camera out, looking at the scene and asking yourself what speaks to you. What is calling to you specifically in the scene? What are the features that you love? What are the characteristics about those features that you love? And how can you exaggerate those things and minimize the things that you don't like about it? So that's what we talk about. And 
we'll go from there. And Ian, I'm guessing that you had a few questions about astrophotography. Just a, just a guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what recommendations or what tips were you giving people over and over? I'm not sure why I haven't noticed it on like other outings and other workshops, but the most common problem that I found was that in the dark, a lot of people were struggling to find play button on the back of their camera to review their image. The actual thing that we we're trying to, to work on was focus. Focus was a, an overwhelming and, and very common topic that we, that we would address on our outings. And the first thing you got to do to check your focus after you've made a shot is review your image. But it's mm -hmm. so dark out there. We're trying to minimize the amount of light that we're letting stray into the scene. So we have our headlamps off. And how on earth do we find that darn play button on the back <laughs> of the camera in the dark? Um, and uh, it, it actually got me thinking that uh, it would be a really great exercise to just sort of practice this on your camera before you go out and, and just figure out, you know, with your eyes closed or something, uh, where that play button is on your camera. And I, I realize how automatic it is for me. You know, I mean, I, I spent I spent the last 15 years shooting night photography and I've memorized it on every camera that I've had or where, where this button is. Um, that and, and, the, and the, uh, the little magnifier button mm -hmm. on your camera. But we did work uh, a lot on focus and, and little tips and tricks for how to, how to actually zoom into the star and maintain your focus. Do an initial infinity setting um, and then point it at the brightest star, get that centered into, into the very center of your frame, and then use your live view magnification to get in there and, and, uh, and try to focus. It's always a challenge at night, um, and, and that's the most common way that we were, we were doing it. So, yeah. so, Ian, are you saying that if we did night photography during the day, it would be a lot easier? <laughs> yeah, much easier. Yeah. Much the easier. Milky Way is a little bit more obscured um, by this big thing in the sky called the sun, but yeah. um, you know, at, at least we have a little bit more light to work with during the day. That's when you really notice or you really learn how well or how not well you know your camera is when you go out in the dark and the instructor says, okay, lights off. And then suddenly like you can't find a single button on your camera. I run into it every time when I'm out doing night photography with people is they just struggle with just like the technical aspects of like functioning your camera. Yeah, that, that totally... I can relate with that. How about you, Aaron? What, what have people been asking you about a lot? Uh, well, uh, you know, on a practical level, every region is a little bit different. And um, this one being kind of rocky and bouldery, there was a little bit of scrambling involved on a lot of these uh, outings. Yeah, and I think one of the common thoughts, although it might, maybe wasn't always voiced, is where's the escalator? Like, how do I get from here to there anyway? <laughs> it just doesn't put my tripod somewhere. But also, because we had a lot of arches involved, one of the compositional concerns that came up maybe a little more frequently than usual, although it's a common one regardless, is um, dealing with how that, if you're including an entire arch, you want a grand scene uh, in your frame, how do you get that thing to live comfortably in the frame? Because sometimes they're really asymmetrical and there'd be some weird little wedge of sky only on one side that really pulls the eye. And so dealing with those um, edges of the frame became a lot more... Um, I think complicated for people than maybe as usual. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed photographing these arches is that they're very light dependent and we've had a, a wide array of light during this trip. We've had everything from bluebird skies to no sky to pouring rain, but then we had some really nice sunrises and we've had a wide array. And I've noticed that when you're photographing these arches, a lot of times you're including just so much of the sky because you're kind of close to them, angled up. And my favorite shots have been the ones that I've seen where the sky is really working well with, <laughs> with uh, the arch. It's difficult sometimes 
sometimes to compose a shot when you're just not getting the light. And I think um, <clears throat> one of the things I kind of wanted to touch on is that you see a lot of these presenters and they are bringing up these amazing images one after the other after the other. And sometimes it can get a little bit intimidating as, you know, the photographer that's not out there all the time. And I think all three of these guys would agree the trick to getting some of those really amazing images is just to return to the same place over and over and over. So. Josh, when people look at your portfolio, how do you get the images that you get in regards to um, returning to the same place over and over? And what is it that you really focus on as far as trying to get the shot that you're envisioning? Uh, so for me, it's about 98% luck and 2% knowing where the play button is on my camera. <laughs> we talked about it a lot in a lot of my carpools this week, which was... Um, often amazing things really do happen in photography and it might seem to you like things don't happen to you that often like you, for example in uh, both aaron and ian's presentations they're showing as nick said amazing image after amazing image are these guys just lucky are they just good what is the deal mm -hmm. and the truth is they're just out just getting out there you'll find even in in this weekend we were here five days we had three days of rain but how many rainbows did we see how many really cool patterns in the rock how many uh beautiful textured skies were there right so how many people got at least five portfolio images this mm -hmm. weekend you know a handful three two one that's great you know ansel adams used to say 12 images in a year was a good crop and if you can get one or two in a weekend that's pretty amazing and that's by virtue of simply getting out there as much as possible so for me what i try to do is uh as ian alluded to really know my equipment so that i don't have a technical hurdle when something is happening oh my gosh that light is amazing and I, this is how i want to capture it the camera is a no-brainer right i don't want to be sitting there going oh crap how, how do i adjust my exposure now that my aperture is different i just <laughs> automatic so i know my equipment i know the technical side of things so it's not and then i just get out just get out, mm -hmm. get out, get out. And the more you're out, the more amazing things you're going to see. It's, it's that simple. I, I don't pretend that I'm the most talented or the most creative photographer, but I like to go beautiful places in crappy weather and awesome stuff often results. I guarantee that of everybody in this room, the people that got out and shot the most, those are the ones that came back with the best photos. It's not necessarily, you know, how good you are at predicting the weather. It's more about just how willing to put up with that bad weather you are. As Thomas Heaton says, you got to be in it to win it. And a lot of you were really in it, but more so than me. I, I actually spent a little bit more time than I wish I would have in the hotel because, <laughs> you know, early morning presentations and stuff. Um, what about you? And what do you do to try to make sure that you're coming home with the goods? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that I feel is uh, maybe not a, not completely obvious, you know, when we go up and we present these these images, which which are our, our best work, is that if I showed you my Lightroom catalog, uh, you would see all of the crud that I created uh, in that catalog. And I think you need you need all of the all of the crud. You, you need all of those images that you hate in there. And, uh, you know, from that comes that one image that you that you found on, on your outing. I usually have a Lightroom catalog that usually approaches about 100,000 photos per year. I have one catalog per year. And I think 2008 is, is at like something like 70,000 right now. Maybe I'll hit 100 grand by, uh, by the end of the year. But, you know, I don't have 100,000 great shots. You know, I've got maybe like 10 that I really want to show you. So that's, that's not a, a very 
large hit rate, you know, when it comes to like the, the really amazing photos, but um, knowing and understanding how to filter that out is important. And the yeah. only way that I got that hundred grand uh, per year was trying to go out there. And I, I always tell people it's like the last final tip for like, you know, what's like that last little extra mojo to, to, to get a great astrophotography shot, a great landscape shot. And that's just to go, mm-hmm. go out, wake up early and just, just go someplace. Yeah. You got to play to win. So to speak. earlier in the year, I actually had Aaron and Alex Noriega on my show. And the topic was quality over quantity. And I think we're kind of pigeonholing this conversation down into that a little bit. Aaron, I know that you don't release a whole lot of photos every year. <laughs> and and part of the reason that every image that you see from her is so amazing is because she is so incredibly picky about it. Like you, you are quite particular about the images you release. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about the, the culling process, like what, what it takes for an image to be on Aaron Bobnick's website. <laughs> well, I think that um, everybody gets to a point ultimately where they have uh, an idea of what really feels like their photo. Uh, when you reach that point, uh, some people are picky about it and some aren't. They, they still know what they feel like. Yeah, that's really something where I, I see myself in that photo. Um, and I'm, I'm just very picky about only releasing those photographs. Um, so I take a lot of them, you know, a lot, oftentimes I'll approach a scene and, um, and shoot all sorts of things for a variety of reasons. Cause I think it might make a good teaching point down the line or just because it seems like fun or, or what have you. But the ones that I, I choose to process and work on and, and actually put out, it's a way, as I said on your podcast, it's a way for me to explain myself to me. And I think that that process of making me make those decisions, uh, making myself make those decisions is, is how I've kind of locked on to what I feel I'm doing personally and creatively that's really mine. So something that we're going to do here in a few minutes is we have a microphone over here. The purpose of that microphone is that if anybody has a question they want to ask either the whole panel or one person on the panel, what we're going to do is we're going to have you come line up on this aisle over here and then we're going to kind of scroll you through and we're hoping there's going to be some because this is going to be a really short episode if there's not. Uh, so if you have a question that you want to ask somebody, just go ahead at any time, like starting now, go over towards Melinda with the microphone. We're going to call on you guys here in a few minutes. But one of the things I also wanted to touch on is because all four of us are very different photographers and, and we have uh, you know very different ways of doing things. But one thing that we do have in common is that we all love the outdoors and we all love Um, the places that we visit. And one of the things that I've seen in just my short time of doing photography, which is only five years, is the massive amount of growth of just outdoor activity and the amount of people that go outdoors and go to these places. And unfortunately, I've seen some of these places just getting absolutely trashed by a combination of just lots of human traffic. And then you have lots of just human disrespect for for the environment. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is maybe ways that we can be take an active part in conservation and like helping take care of the places that give us the photos that we go to. Josh, I'm sure that this is something that's on your mind a little bit, aside from colds and losing your voice. Yeah. So what 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 can we do as lowly photographers? Okay, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go to Ian. <laughs> I mean, Josh gets really emotional about this topic. He 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. We're gonna give him a minute, and then. Uh, but how about you, Ian? I mean, I feel like this is like a topic of conversation that that comes up with pretty much every photographer that I talk to. I was thinking about this last night actually, because we were out at Landscape Barge and we're walking out, and um, uh, one of the things I, I did love about that whole trail was that it seemed so well managed and so clean. Um, and the, the whole park actually, um, for the most part, actually seems like pretty well managed. But then you start looking a little closer. And as we were walking, walking out, you know, I saw like a little, little corner of a wrapper that had been pulled off of somebody's, you know, candy bar or something. And it was just sitting there next to a little piece of sagebrush. You know, that like little thing could have like a really drastic impact on something, mm -hmm. you know, an animal could eat it or something and it could kill it. And it all adds up, you know, it, like every little bit of that. If, if, if everybody was so nonchalant about that little piece of plastic and just left it there, then they would all build up and our Arches National Park would be full of trash. Um, and so I picked it up. I picked it up and I put it in my pocket and, you know, I put it in its place, you know, when we, when we got back. I actually think that, that doing that while you're out um, I'm not telling you to be responsible about other people's stuff and, and, and just like, you know, clean up after everybody else, you know, clean, clean up after yourself. That's the first lesson. But if you see something, you know, a wrapper, or orange peel on the ground, that's not supposed to be there. Uh, pick it up. I'm uh, known to attend a little thing called Burning Man. You may have heard of, um, but there's there's a very important lesson in Burning Man. They they have a, a leave no trace principle behind the entire event, and there's a, a sort of like an ongoing meme or or like cultural uh, uh, thing. They have a term called MOOP, and it stands for Matter Out of Place, and it's anything. It's anything that's not supposed to be there in the in the in the Black Rock Desert. If you see it and it's on the ground, whether it's just the smallest thing like a feather from somebody's costume, or a, a candy bar wrapper. Um, you pick it up, mm -hmm. you pick it up and you bring it with you and you take it home and then you throw it away. Um, and, and I actually think that all of us out there, you know, this group, we've got like 150 people here. If, if everybody had that in mind while they were going out and they saw that piece of trash in, in, you know, behind the bush over there and you're like, that's not supposed to be there. Let me go grab that and take it back make a huge difference. And if, if that mentality propagates, then, you know, we, we won't have that, that problem yeah. in the future. There's a lot to be said about just leading by example. <clears throat> it's difficult when you have a place that tons of people visit. One of the things that I've started doing, at least when I go out and shoot by myself, is I take like a little garbage bag, stuff it in my camera bag, and then when I see stuff, I stuff it in the garbage bag. And another thing I've also seen people doing that is awesome is they'll, they'll lead just cleanup crew parties, like where you'll have a group of photographers and you'll just take an afternoon, you'll go to your favorite location or favorite area, and you'll have like 15 people just walking around picking up trash and trying to clean up the area but it's not all just trash a lot of it is just traffic you know and the, i see it a lot in the pacific northwest where we have all this beautiful moss covering everything or at least we used to have all this beautiful moss co covering everything and then it's so beautiful that lots of people go there and then they go off trail and then before you know it there's no moss on anything there's just footprints and and trails and stuff uh, this has to come up a lot with you and your workshops Aaron what do you yeah being that I'm frequently in wilderness areas that are 
relatively pristine and not necessarily ma- not maintained <laughs> as some of these areas are. Um, I take this issue really seriously. And my advice to people is just to keep in mind that um, awareness starts with all of us. And it's not like everyone needs to have some major soapbox thing going on where you're, you're, you're on, on that soapbox about it all the time. But anything you can do, anything just to spread the word, because something that uh, may surprise you is that a lot of people are just not in that mindset. They're just not aware. They don't realize that some of the things that they're doing are that damaging. They really don't. Uh, realize it, especially younger people. Uh, so it's helpful if you know every now and then in a in a if you post stuff online, just put something in there that might be helpful about the fragility of of that place or places in general. Those of you who came out to see my talk, um, which I guess is probably most of you uh, here at the conference, you so I kind of wedged in and made you all listen to that that leave no trace section in there. Uh, Might have seemed a little bit forced, but you know just wherever you can just sort of insert mm-hmm. these things so that. Um, people get the word uh, out and it starts circulating, that will have a kind of knock-on effect and it'll snowball and eventually I think things will improve through that. Like it or not, photographers in some ways are really responsible for most of that or a lot of that traffic because every photo that we take or that we share on social media anyways, it's almost like marketing for that particular place. They see that and they're like, oh, I want to go there. And every photo has an impact. So if you can kind of put a message with that impact, at least you can have a little bit of a positive influence, a positive uh, whatever as well. How are you? How are you ready to talk? I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very nice. I, th- I think it's a little bit of a sticky wicket, to be honest with you guys. Um, and it's something that I struggle with personally because mm-hmm. when I do my hiking, a lot of it is off trail. And I realize there is an impact to that. And I realize that the places I go uh, remain pristine because I'm the only person who's there. But if everybody was able to go there, certainly the impact that I have on that magnified on that grand scale would leave that place in a worse state, which doesn't really coexist very well with leave no trace ideas. But the truth is uh, everything we do has an impact in some way, positive, in some way negative, right? You think about we were driving out this morning and I hate to single this person out, but one of the people in our group mentioned how they accidentally ran over a mouse or something on the drive this morning to a location. That's a that's a natural byproduct. I've done the same. I've hit rabbits and hares and on mice and all kinds of stuff. I can't imagine the untold thousands of insects I've accidentally killed or things like that. And all the negative impacts that we do have as a byproduct of our pursuit of landscape photography. And I think the only way to have zero impact is to not exist anymore. So that's obviously not a good solution. So uh, I think like Aaron was saying, if long as you can bring a message of the impact and awareness of the impact that we have, and hopefully over time people realize that, and if you're spreading that, that message of conservation, preservation, then hopefully that does offset over time the fact that, yeah, when we drive, it emits carbon from our cars. And when we fly around the world and encourage people to come on our workshops, that's uh, not a very you know, environmentally friendly thing to do. But there are things we can do to offset that, planting trees, contributing to grassroots uh, conservation movements and things like that. And hopefully over time, as people see that, spread that message and get that ball rolling, we will overall have a positive impact. Absolutely. Good points. So it looks like we have a question over here. So let's give this a try. With all the technical difficulties we've had, I'm sure this will go great. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Jerry. Actually, some, one part of the question was a lot of what you're just talking about. You know, with the explosion of YouTube and what you guys do on YouTube and 
most of us probably watch your YouTube channels and how popular it's made photography. My basic question is, is there anywhere left in the world is unexplored or pristine? Because there always seems to be, you know, first of all, it was Iceland, right? Everybody was going to Iceland. And, and we all know how that ended. Yeah. And <laughs> Iceland's overwhelmed now with tourists that they basically can't handle. Now the pharaohs seem to be, as we call it, the new Iceland. So, you know, where's the next new pharaohs or Iceland? Where do you see this going? And where do you think ultimately it will get to? I mean, I'm very happy to hear that people have stopped geotagging or talking about geotagging where they're taking photographs because I think we're, you're making things too easy for people. I think the pleasure is actually exploring and being creative and the challenge. So just, just my comment and a question about where do you see this going? There's nothing more rewarding than feeling like you found a place on your own rather than you just found it on some Facebook group, you know? What do you I, guys I have a lot to say about right. that, so I'll just dive in there uh, on two fronts. Firstly, um, yes, there are places that are absolutely pristine and unexplored, even in Iceland. I just spent almost two weeks in Iceland with a group in the Highlands, um, and we didn't see a single other photographer for a full nine-day period in Iceland, nor did we see a paved road uh, in that period. So uh, we went out expedition-style, bringing our own cook and all of that. So there, there are definitely places. They're just not the accessible ones. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And to answer your question about where's the next hotspot, well... Um, unfortunately, I feel as though the Dolomites is, is becoming that, one of those, and that this pains me because I realized my own role in popularizing that area. I first started really exploring it, popularizing it about a decade ago, and I remember predicting to my friends when I first started telling people that that's where I was spending all my time, the biggest question I would get is, where is the Dolomites? And then I would say, it's in Italy. And the next question would be, Italy has mountains? <laughs> yeah. you know, it was all just Rome and Venice to people. Uh, and now, and I, and I was predicting to my friends, I give it two years, two years, because um, I had started taking groups there and, um, uh, and also a bunch of co-leaders who were popularizing place as well with their followings. And, um, and it just started to kind of blow up. So I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, there are these wonderful places and you want to experience them and share them with people. I tend to frequent the more remote parts. Um, so a lot of that stuff is still very pristine. And there are some places where I outright tell people, slow the, the flow into these places by not geotagging and that sort of thing. But also just, you know, spreading that message and helping people to understand that when they come to these places to leave them the way that exactly the way that they found them to the extent that they can can be really helpful. I think the, the more difficult it is to get to a spot, the more likely it is that that's going to be, you know, the pristine area. Places with roads right up to them, those are, <laughs> those are more easily visited and those are going to get a lot more of the tourism. There's definitely a lot of places in Iceland that are exactly that. You see all the same locations visited by people, but there's so much of Iceland that is unexplored because it's a real pain to get to. You know, places like the Faroe Islands, it's still a pain to get to because there's like one one airline that even flies in there. Well, there's two, but one can only la land when the weather's nice. Looks like we have another question. Uh, thanks. Uh, my name is Steve. First, I want to thank uh, the staff from out of Chicago and, and the instructors. It's been an incredible week. So one of the things that I learned, I think I had the fundamental understanding of photography down, but I don't do it very often. And one of the things that I learned, and, and I think Ian touched on it a little bit, is 
what I wanted to get away is the efficiency of being a photographer. Every night when I got back to my hotel room, my photography bag looked like someone went in and exploded, you know, and, and then trying to find certain lenses and things in the middle of the night. And where the, where, and how do you guys, because you travel so much, is there ways that you set up your bag to make it most efficient, to be an efficient photographer? Mm. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Josh? Uh, when, I'm, when I'm traveling, for me, it's about priorities. And so uh, I'll use my backpacking as an example. Um, I think about the shots that I would most like to get, and I tend to prioritize my kit toward that because I can only bring a certain amount of stuff, right? And so what is the shot I most want to take? And it's usually uh, either a wide angle or a cool telephoto, so the heaviest lenses that I can. <laughs> but uh, I think backpacking is a, is a great thing because it really distills down what is your priority, right? And, it, and it's the same for travel, anything like that. You got to decide... Do you want to be comfortable on the trail? Do you want to be comfortable in camp? And I think you can use that as maybe as a metaphor for travel on a larger scale, right? Do you want to have everything possible with you at all times, which is pretty awesome if you want to open up as many opportunities for photography as you can, but then it makes you, maybe it's a pain in the ass to get there. You got to pay extra baggage fee or whatever. So uh, again, for me, it just comes down to priority. Uh, I am out backpacking as much to enjoy the experience of moving through the wilderness as I am to take photographs. And so if my experience of moving through the wilderness is hindered by the fact that I have a 60 pound bag because I've got 25 pounds of camera gear on top of all my other stuff, I don't know if that's the experience I want. Mm -hmm. So sometimes maybe I'm willing to let things, I'm not gonna bring every single lens. I might just bring one wide angle. I might not bring any filters. And I accept the fact that I might not get that shot, but if, it, if my priority is to have this experience, that's okay. So that would be my advice. Think about what your priority is. And um, if it's efficiency, then don't bring as much stuff. Yeah. Kind of related to this. I think it's related. Um, one thing that I always notice on these trips is a lot of the instructors have way simpler setups just in general than a lot of the students. Like I'll see a student open their bag and they've got like five prime lenses and three camera bodies, two different camera systems. Like, you know, I'm dipping my toe into the Fuji, but I shoot Canon as well. And uh, you see very complex setups and it's really easy for to be inefficient when you have so many options open to you. A lot of times I travel with two lenses. I have my telephoto and my wide. Sometimes I'll have a 50 millimeter or something in the middle, but I'm efficient because my I have very limited options, you know, and I've only got those two lenses and maybe they're already attached to body. So I just grab the other camera and I'm ready to go. Sometimes just simplifying your setup makes you more efficient as well. I came here with a 35 millimeter prime lens and that's all I used the whole time. Are you a street photographer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not trying to be like uh, Cartier-Bresson or, or anything like that, but um, that is how I practice my shooting. Um, I, will, I will pick a tool, and I will try to master that one tool with the constraint of that tool. And, and putting that creative constraint on is... Uh, it's funny because this is actually something that was... was severely accelerated by this guy over here. Uh, I watched one of his presentations um, a few months ago and he talked about uh, the idea of creative constraint, like only shooting with a fisheye or only shooting with a telephoto. It's something that I have, I've done before, but after sort of seeing Josh's presentation about that, um, I sort of like took that to heart just over the last few months and it's been really uh, liberating because you're out there with just the camera and the lens and you know maybe a tripod. Um, and not thinking about 
uh, oh my God, look at the light, look at the sky. I, I should go grab the 16 to 35 and you're sitting there fiddling with your, your camera, trying to change lenses, preventing dust from getting in them and all that stuff. And it, there's a certain stress that goes along with that, certain pressure that you put on yourself um, in order to, 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 to manage all that gear. You know, the sort of like a mental thing that goes on about like, oh, where, where's the 16 to 35? I better go find that. That, I think, eliminating that element to your photography um, by focusing on, on just one thing can, can really open up the avenues of, of then focusing instead on your composition, um, which I think ultimately is the thing that we end up loving the most about our photographs. We're not necessarily concerned about the technical aspect. I mean, we can we all know how to take a sharp photo. We know when our, our photo is good. Speak we, for we, yourself. We know when it's bad. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, with a little practice, the, 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 those are like the easy things to master um, at the end of the day, the you know, the technical stuff. And ultimately we, we want that great composition. And if we have our gear distracting us from it, then, you know, that's just like one other hurdle to have to jump over to get there. So I like to do that a lot. Um, pick a prime, um, you know, just pick one zoom lens and, and go out and try to shoot with that and see if you can constrain yourself from having to, to, to do a lens change or something. Um, and that, that makes your bag smaller. My wife and I sort of practice like a relatively minimal lifestyle, especially while we're traveling. Um, I will travel with nothing but a 20 liter backpack, which fits underneath the seat in front of you in an airline. And that is everything. That is my camera, tripod, computer, and all my clothes for a three-month trip through Europe. Wow. Um, <laughs> you you don't want to smell them at the end of that trip. <laughs> Truth be told, we, we, you know, we'll stay in an Airbnb and we'll get a shower here and there um, for sure. But but it's it's a liberating thing to, to, yeah. to be able to do that. And, you know, when your bag is that small, you you know where everything is. It, it all has its place. Um, and it, it, it sort of eliminates that sort of back-of-the-mind anxiety about, where all my stuff is and so when you're at dead horse point and one of the students says hey Ian, what focal length you shooting <laughs> 35 35 millimeter <laughs> and then then when you go to uh delicate arch and they're like uh hey Ian, what focal length are you shooting <laughs> 35 <laughs> next question what what i was wondering um talking about the uh picking up garbage like ian found a wrapper last night i picked up a gold earring so sometimes it actually pays off so <laughs> if, if, if anybody's missing an earring uh chris nicholson has it um what i wanted to know is each one of you i can tell when you see a photo of a seascape you know it's a nick page seascape if i see a photo of the del Montes, i know it's a aaron's picture what do you guys and this whole conference is about getting out of your zone like trying new things what do you guys do to expand like do you get into night photography or does ian want to shoot you know wildlife what do you guys do <clears throat> some people probably already know this about me but i'm kind of a multi-genre photographer i'm one of the few instructors here that probably still does that but part of the benefit of shooting several different types of photography is that when I get burnt out on one type, I'll take a break from that type of photography and do a different type of photography. So like a, when I turn into a complete light snob and no sunset is good enough for me anymore, I know that it, I'm probably, I'm getting a little burnout on landscape photography. And in those situations, it's really nice to go shoot a football game or something where it's so completely different. I'm still honing my skills as a photographer and 
but I'm using a completely different set of skills and it's a completely different experience and it's so refreshing to just to be a fly on the wall and just try to react and keep up with the action around you and you don't have to sit there and you know painstakingly compose anything and bracket for exposure and you know you don't have to do any of those type of things but it also in my opinion makes me a better photographer to shoot multiple types of photography shooting sports and shooting weddings and stuff like that it it gets me thinking about the importance of the moment and how that has a role in landscape photography i think gets overlooked a lot of times um, so that that's part of the appeal for seascapes for me is that there is a sense of energy movement and moment in seascapes and photographing waves and stuff and it's that's kind of influenced how I shoot landscape photography. I'm always thinking about the moment and thinking about, you know, the decisive moment and the peak of light and all of that stuff. And a lot of people are just like, they don't quite think that way because they don't shoot all those other genres. How about um, you, Aaron? Yeah, I would say there are two ways to look at this. I actually wasn't always a landscape photographer. Uh, when I first started out professionally, I was actually doing a lot of assignment work as a museum and archaeological photographer. I also did product photography. Um, I've shot models. Uh, I did all sorts of things just to get myself through grad school. <laughs> and so I think exactly what Nick was saying, it really helps. So those of you who really haven't dabbled much in other genres, um, you know, check out the other conferences like this that out of Chicago has a huge variety of them. That's a great place to look. But, you know, if you haven't tried other genres of photography, do that. It really is instructive. Um, and once you lock into something and you think, yeah, this is me, uh, which I ultimately did with landscapes, there's a lot of there are a lot of subgenres within landscape. If you want to kind of keep keep fresh and hone your chops, you know, try a variety of it. Don't always do the same thing. So if you happen to live near an ocean and you just find that you're just doing seascapes all the time, maybe branch out a little bit and venture into the forest. Go try some mountains. Get out into the desert. Try different biomes. Um, they vary a lot and the your toolkit will vary. Everything will vary uh, from one landscape to another. What is going to be important? Everyone who, who went to Acadia got a whole other set of instruction than what the people who were here at Moab yeah got you know this year so uh, there's that and then the other side of all of this is the from the whole expansion thing is that there's a lot also to be said for kind of narrowing down and then focusing on something that is really important to you and just kind of hammering away at it um, there's a lot to be said for that too once you find that subgenre that you're the most passionate about <clears throat> it's really easy to dive deep into like explore it very deeply and and to get really obsessive about it because you're passionate about it and you don't even notice that you're being crazy obsessive about that particular type of photography ian <laughs> <laughs> i have a website that's all about night photography you might have heard of it um yeah i so i shoot of those hundred thousand photos i was telling you that i could end up shooting a year probably 25 percent of them are actually night photos um, because, you know, you go out to these places, there are other times of the day, you know, to shoot for sure. Um, uh, one of the things I absolutely love doing is uh, shooting photos uh, of Diana, my wife. Um, we sometimes will do uh, kind of costume shoots. Let's keep uh, this G-rated. Yeah, no, 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 no. This is all G-rated, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do costume shoots um, where, you know, she'll put together an outfit, she'll design an outfit, and uh, we'll go shoot her as a model. And, uh, you know, that's like one thing that we'll, we'll branch off and do completely separately. And th those, po those photos are, are, are for us, you know. Um, sometimes she'll publish uh, them on her travel blog and, and, and talk about them. 
but you know, it's, it's like definitely a completely different style of shooting. Um, you're, you're concerned less about the landscape that you happen to be in, um, than about, you know, the pose or the light on her face or something like that. And being able to understand the, the different aspects that go into portrait photography, um, I, th I think end up really complementing a lot of the things that go into when I'm doing just pure landscape or, or, or night photography. And yeah, so I, I think like branching out into, the, into those other genres is, is super important. While most of the photos that I publish tend to be of these places, like maybe out in the wilderness or something, it's actually uh, really uh, one of my favorite things to go out into cities and just shoot, shoot cities. Cities at night, uh, absolutely love it. It's a completely different realm there. Yeah, it's night photography, but it's, it's not at all the same genre of, of uh, photography as astrophotography. So. See, these are things that you didn't know about Ian Norman. That's great. Hi, my name is Gerald. Um, my question is, um, any photographer, and especially you guys, when you go on a shoot, you take a lot of pictures. You want to try to remember the impact they had on you, but also you realize the value of letting them set for a while before you really post-process. So I wanted to ask what kind of time frame you'd use to sort of call through them to decide what the keepers are, and then how long you might wait before you actually post-process the best ones. Mm -hmm. I suspect we're all going to have vastly different answers on this. <laughs> <coughs> Let's start with you, Josh. Uh, usually when I get back from a, it depends on the success of the trip. If I get back from a short trip that's been really successful, like the backpacking trip I talked about yesterday with all those rainbows and crazy colors and stuff, as soon as I get home, that memory card, I mean, before I've even taken a shower, that memory card yeah. is in the computer, the import <laughs> is going on, and I'm drooling through all the pictures. It, it is sort of a long tail. So you start with the best ones and you, what you think are the best ones at the time, right? The ones you were most excited about in the moment and you start fiddling with those. And then maybe the next day you look at a couple different ones and the next day you look at two or three different ones. And maybe a week later you look at some other ones and then five months later you go, oh, what was going on? And you find something you never found before mm -hmm. and you, you dig it up and it process it. And for me, my, my processing is usually pretty straightforward. I will give it five, 10 minutes in Lightroom. I don't do a lot of Photoshop anymore unless I need to do exposure blending or some really highly detailed uh, local editing. And then I'll let it rest for a day and I'll take a look at it. And if it looks good, I'll let it sit, that's it. Um, now on a longer trip, say like in New Zealand, I was in New Zealand for two months this spring, you get so sick of looking <laughs> through those pictures by the end of that trip that you just put that whole folder away, 3000 pictures or however many I've taken. And I just forget about it. And then I'll come back a couple months later when I'm finally ready because you go, you know, that first day, oh my God, that sunrise at uh, Lake Wanaka was epic. I can't wait. I just want to look, 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 look. But man, after you've done that every day for two months, you never want to see that freaking tree ever again in your life. <laughs> so, so those I usually wait a while and then I'll come back to um, maybe when I'm getting ready to go for another trip or I've seen somebody who's just come back from New Zealand and that'll get me excited about, oh yeah. Then I'll go back to it. Yep. Yeah. Aaron, I know that you have... <laughs> Freakishly. Uh, what what was it that you referred to it as? The uh, incubation process. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I love uh, putting these things away for a while. Sometimes I might do a, a quick little sketch, processing sketch of an image, I call it. And then I'll, then I'll tuck it away because I really like to come back to an image at least a month later. I, I usually don't 
of process anything within a month of having shot it because I love that uh, that really kind of fresh approach to it where the the experience now has become sort of um, an icon of itself rather than a complication of being so immersed in it they don't really have the distance to really see the image for what it is um, so I had my experience and then I want to kind of get some distance on it so that I can sort of see maybe a different perspective as well and bring that to it everything Josh said resonates so well with me because I'm the same way a short trip that was successful I can't wait to check out those photos but after you know a long international trip I'm just wore out I can't I don't want to deal with it right now but the the added you know part that I have is that I'm creating these YouTube videos as well and part of those YouTube videos is I have to have a bunch of photos to put in them so it forces me to actually go through and edit them and sometimes unfortunately it forces me to edit them before I'm even in the mood to edit them. Uh, my favorite thing, and I feel like my strongest images always come from when I'm like feeling particularly inspired that night. May maybe it was the Sam Adams that I drank or whatever, but I'm in the mood to process. And when I'm really in the mood for it and I'm, you know, I got the music's just right. Like I put on some Lord of the Rings music or some Game of Thrones and I, I get in the mood. I like to just go through and, and find something that is is of what I want to edit. Like I'm in the mood for a forest scene and I'll dig through my massive archive and find something I haven't processed yet. And I, I like it to be a, a flash of inspiration when I process rather than, you know, some kind of cold scientific thing. Because for me, that's not what photography is. It's not a cold scientific, like, this is slightly better than this. I want it to be like fun and a creative thing. And it's hard to do that when you're not inspired to do it. So I always try to wait till I'm inspired to do it. One of the ways that I approach it tends to sort of mimic what uh, Nick and Josh were saying. And that's, uh, yeah, you get back from a shoot and you're just so excited to see the photos. So I'll just like process them instantly and just like kind of go through and and you know I usually find myself like at 2 a.m. realizing that I'm like falling asleep as I'm processing and and uh, it's because I'm so excited to, to process those photos and oftentimes it's because I I like to approach my photography um, as a project um, usually it's a project related to how what I want to publish uh, on my blog and that, that's sort of like really developed like how I plan a particular shoot or a particular trip is like I have a goal in mind for uh, this blog post. Uh, it, it could be a gear review or it could be a technique I want to talk about. And so I, I try to build a set of images um, worthy of that blog post. And so with that comes sort of what Nick, like what Nick was talking about, like trying to create a YouTube video. Um, like you just need to get images for it. And, and you're actively putting together, say, a video or a blog post as you're out shooting. And so you have sort of like that underlying pressure of trying to get out an image. For that reason, sometimes I do find myself just staying up late at night and, and processing images like, you know, right after I had shot them. But I do let images bake too. There's some that I will mm -hmm. just let sit for a long time. There are things that sort of bring them back up again. Sometimes it's just a conversation with a friend about this trip that you made and you're like, I haven't published a single photo from our Iceland trip. Um, and and I, all of these photos are, are just sitting on my hard drive, like waiting for me. And that trip was like two years ago. Um, and so I know that I'm going to go back to, to those, you know, sort of inspired by some of the things that other people said about Iceland and go back and, and take a look at those shots and, and, and go and edit them. So it's okay to let them sit. Um, it's actually one of the things that I really loved about shooting on film um, was that 
when I, when, when I would shoot something on film, I, I, I practiced film photography um, in college a whole lot and had a film camera um, up until just a few years ago. And um, the, the reward, I suppose, of revisiting those photos again after the fact is uh, it's really hard to describe just like the feeling that you get of this thing that has been locked away for so long and then finally processing it. Um, it's really, really rewarding. So mm -hmm. I, I like to practice both, I guess. Mm -hmm. One thing that most really good post-processors will all agree on is that you edit a photo and then you don't release it immediately. Like you, you have that period where you like let it sit overnight. For some people it's a month, <laughs> or, but you let it sit for a day or two. That way you give your eyes a break and then you come back to it and you have that first reaction to it. Uh, that's one of the things Which that is I- usually, ugh. <laughs> exactly. What was what, I drinking what I, last oh night? What was I thinking? Um, yeah, and that's one of the things that I struggle with because, you know, by the time I'm done with an edit, I'm usually, I'm just done with this, whatever. But it, my best photos, when I know that I have one that's going to be like, you know, on Nick Page's wall, speaking in third person, I, I always take a little extra time and I walk away from it for a little while and then come back to it, see it with fresh eyes because there's so many things that you just overlook at the time of editing it. So we have one more question. Hi, I'm Mike. Uh, during this conference, we've gone out and done some great shots and everything like that, but we normally get there right about an hour beforehand. So my question is more is, what is your guys' process for gouting locations? And if you guys have anything that you use, if it's just a journal, an app or something like that. Also, what percentage of your portfolio worthy work is from that scouting and what percentage is just spur of the moment? I saw this and I jumped up and grabbed it. I know like with my own portfolio, my best photos are from places that I've been to over and over and over and over. And then I finally got a good shot there because it, it's very seldom that you get your best light the very first time you go. And plus, you don't really get to know a location until you've been there a few times and you've had the chance to explore. During this, these kind of conferences, we're kind of in under time constraints. So we're showing up like, you know, half hour before sunset and it's all kind of rushed. And, and sometimes we've been, you know, missing some of the best light as we're getting there. And that, I assume I'm talking for everybody, but when we're going out to shoot, we're getting there much earlier and we're giving ourselves much more time to kind of explore, decompress, like catch, in my case, catch my breath and kind of have a walk around and explore a little bit. But what is the scouting process for you guys? Like, let's start with Josh. I would agree that probably my best photos uh, come from places that I've been a bunch of times. Uh, not necessarily that I'm reshooting the same scenes over and over. I just have more ideas. The more I visit a place, the more ideas I get. The more broad my approach to that place becomes. Now, that being said, I think sometimes the most exciting photos, the ones that I'm most, that make me giddy when I think about them, are ones that just occur spontaneously. All of the photos that I showed you in the first half of my presentation yesterday were taken in a place I'd never been before. And I just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And that adrenaline and that dopamine that's coursing through your system, that makes, even if the photos aren't the maybe the best photos ever, I just remember them with such fondness and such happiness because I was in this amazing mood running around this basin like a crazy person shooting rainbows and amazing sunsets and reflections and all this stuff that I never could have imagined. Um, because I think there's a, a kind of a wonder that comes with the first time you see an amazing place. 
Mm. Right. And um, yeah, you can certainly go back and over and over and sort of iterate. You go, oh man, last time I was here, I had this great composition, but you know what I need to do next time is take two steps to the right and pan down a little bit to include one more little strip of grass, or I'm going to do a long exposure next time. So sort of iteration on an idea. And uh, I'm sort of fundamentally, even though I'm an engineer by education, I'm really kind of a romantic. And I just love that idea. You get to a new place that you've never seen before and you go, oh my God, this is amazing. And something about the photos that you take during those moments uh, for me are really special. I'd say um, one of the things that really reigns true visiting a place, like we, we go to these places um, that we've all seen on Flickr and Instagram, you know, places like Iceland, Skogafoss and Kirkjufet and uh, all these iconic locations. And I, I, going back to that Iceland trip that I just talked about where I, I haven't processed any of the photos, I was thinking about the ones that I, I really did like, the ones that I can remember in my mind. And almost none of them, none of my favorite ones are of those places. I have an amazing long exposure of the Kirkjufet waterfalls and the iconic, you know, Pyramid Mountain behind them. I don't really like that photo that much. I mean, it's good. It's good technically. I mean, it was, the sun was setting and, you know, the light was nice and, and all that stuff. But the, the photo that I ended up liking was when we went off on this one side road and there were uh, these Icelandic horses running uh, just with the sun setting behind them. And it was like this little scene. And the Kirkjufet Mountains was like right, right next to us. And I could have been shooting that with, with like the wide angle and the horses, but we got the telephoto out and just shot these little vignettes of the horses. And, and you know, I, I remember those photos so distinctly um, without even having ever processed them or revisiting them. And, and, you know, those are the ones that I really love. It was like that little side offshoot serendipity thing. I think those are the ones that are the most special for me. It's not necessarily the iconic shot, which maybe I went there for, um, but the little serendipitous stuff that happens on the side. Yeah, um, I would say someone asked me this exact question in the car the other day, and uh, I would really be hard pressed to think of a single shot in my entire portfolio that is purely the result of scouting and research. Um, all the scouting and research does is kind of gets you in the ballpark. But that's that's a lot. That's great. And then the rest of it is just seeing and responding. So mm -hmm. most of my images are sort of a combination of those two things. If, if it's not going back to some place that I know really well, if it's a my first time in an area, it just kind of gets me in in the in the area that's likely to be fruitful. And it's very common that I come away with something that I could never have imagined. It wasn't something that I had in mind. It's not the result of any kind of expectations or anything, but it is the result of at least giving myself the benefit of, of, a, of a place and a time that is interesting to me and where, where I do have some options. And that's kind of the, the fun part of going to these conferences in general is that you're getting to hear and listen to so many different instructors speak. And they all, they can all give you like 180 degree different answers. And that's the beautiful part of photography is that it, there's no right way. You know, it's an art and we all get to do it our own way and we all get to be inspired by our own things. And it's funny that we can sit here and have such completely different answers to the same question. So thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much for uh, listening to us and, and not hazing us or anything and <laughs> and we'll catch you guys in the next episode take it easy everybody